Hello, and welcome to another episode of Pilates Elephants with your host, Raphael Bender. Glad to be here with you today. We are doing this episode live. So if you're joining us live, uh, glad to have you with us. And uh, whatever platform you're on, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube, uh, you can type questions into the uh, chat stream and I will see them here. So um, love to have your questions, your comments, your feedback. Don't feel like you need to wait to the end. Let's uh, make this interactive. If there's anything that pops into your brain, um, I'd love to dialogue with you. So what I want to talk about today are the the question, which skills do you need to confidently teach Pilates to anyone? Now, in, uh, I'm going to make a case that I think there are five key skills of a Pilates instructor. Uh, and I think that we spend too much time out as a general rule um, on repertoire. And with, with I've said this before, um, but I think that, you know, historically, a lot of us, and I've I've been I've I've been this person. A lot of us think everything's a nail when it comes to Pilates, uh, and the hammer that we have is learning more repertoire. Uh, so we think, oh, I you know I want to increase my confidence, so I'm working with injuries, so I better get more repertoire. I want to you know get more clients and make more money, better get more repertoire. Um, and I think that's uh, that's a mistaken that's a mistaken approach. Now I love the repertoire. I you know know all the repertoire we teach the classical or the controlled repertoire at Breathe, um, so I'm a fan of the repertoire. But I think it is not the. Uh, I think we 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 it is. There are other core skills that I think are relatively neglected, and certainly were neglected in all of the training I participated in as a student uh, in Pilates. And I'm pretty sure most other most Pilates educators don't teach a lot of these skills. So the things that I think are the key skills to be confident to teach Pilates to anyone are, number one, the exercises. <laughs> okay, so yes, you do need to know the exercises, uh, but I want to talk about this more in a minute. Next one is cueing. Uh, the third one is programming. Uh, the fourth is prenatal and the fifth, or pre and postnatal, and the fifth is injuries and pain. Um now, there are other things that you can learn, um, you know, like behavior change, goal setting, business, etc. cetera. Uh, but I think these are the core skills to walk into any situation, whether it's an in-person group studio or a one-on-one -on -one situation or teaching online, uh, teaching in a specialty sort of boutique environment where you have, you know, clients with particular needs or teaching in a more general uh, sort of fitness-based Pilates situation. I think these five skills of the exercises, cueing, programming, prenatal, and injuries are the sort of the five, you know, pillars of skill that uh, we all need to be confident to teach Pilates to anyone who walks through the door or even if they walk through the, the Zoom room. So I want to talk about each of these uh, a little bit in turn. Again, uh, if you're if you watching, if you're live, I'd love to have your questions, your thoughts, your, your input as we go along. Uh, and hopefully if the technology cooperates, uh, they will pop up in my uh, chat here. Uh, so firstly, I want to talk about, you know, a little bit about the exercises. And I think the, you know, the elephant in the room 
uh, or the Pilates elephant here in relation to the exercises is the notion that we need to know all the, the exercises. Um, you know, there are 34 original Contrology mat work exercises, 37 if you add in the series of five from Romana. Uh, there is something like 45 reformer exercises, depending on whether you in- include things like head and so on, for, you know, 45 give or take. Um, and then there's all the Cadillac and the chair and the barrels and the pedipool and the toe corrector um, and, you know, all of those uh, additional um you know, things. And it ends up being, I, you know, I did a count one time a few years back. I think there's something like 550, something that I counted, uh, exercises uh, in the full Pilates, um, you know, system. And of course, that number is going to be different depending on what, whether you, you know, which exercises you classify as truly Pilates or, you know, is the prep for an exercise an extra version or is it just the same exercise? So, you know, so 550 is a rough kind of sort of number. Um, and I'm sure we could have a, a long and interesting debate about <laughs> what that number is, but it's, let's just all, I think we could all agree it's a lot. And I think that, you know, that, you know, I remember when I was, doing my certification, when I was training as an instructor, the biggest, you know, thing that I was focused on was learning all of the exercise and learning the breath patterns and the, you know, the choreography and whether the toes were flexed or pointed and, um, you know, all of that. And I think, you know, all of that has its place, but the amount of time and effort that we spend on it, I think is not commensurate with the result that we get for our clients. Now, I don't know about you, dear listener, but in in a decade or more of teaching, I found that even though I knew all of those 550 exercises, now I knew them because I was teaching them. Like I was teaching people to be to to teach it, to be teachers, right? So we had we went through all of the repertoire and you know multiple times uh, a year, um, you know, on weekends and in uh, intensive courses. So, you know, I, I, I have learned all of those exercises and probably still could, you know, smash out 450 of them reasonably easily, uh, not in terms of like my amazing physical abilities, but just in terms of remembering the choreography and the, the breath patterns and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but what I found, dear listener, is I probably taught about the same about like 20 exercises to almost every client, right? I mean... Is this your experience? Like, do you do you basically find yourself teaching like the same, you know, pretty small list of exercises to almost everyone? Everyone gets some version of footwork, some version of, you know, arms in straps, some version of, you know, the hundred, whatever it might be. Um, well, that was my that was my experience, and when I looked around the studios that I worked at, and you know, when I talked to other instructors, that's what their experience has been as well, by and large. So I'm guessing it's probably your experience as well. Uh, now, that's not a bad thing; it's not a good thing. It's just a it's just a thing that I've observed is seems to be for the majority of instructors that we end up just like teaching really like twenty or thirty exercises. Uh, most, you know, most of the time, or, you know, variations on those 20 or 30 exercises 
most of the time. So, you know, what is the benefit of learning all of those 550 exercises? Well, there is a benefit. Um, I think, you know, understanding the full system and how the exercises kind of work together, you know, is a value add. But I would argue that the amount of time that it takes to learn that, uh, particularly at the start of your career, or if you're not feeling, you know, confident with certain client situations, like if someone is pregnant or has an injury or, you know, can't do a certain exercise because they don't have range of motion or strength or, or whatever to do that exercise. Well, I think if you're lacking confidence in those areas, learning more exercises won't solve that for you. So I think uh, once you've got those kind of 20 or 30 exercises, which are not going to be the same exercise for all of us, but, you know, they're going to be like simple big movements that are applicable to a broad range of people to strengthen the whole body and move the body through range of motion, you know. So I don't know what the exact list is for you, but for me, it's going to be footwork, lunges, long stretch, you know, arms in straps, legs in straps, you know, lying on a box, pulling straps, teaser, you know, like these simple exercises that are, you know, I just find myself pulling out pretty much every time I I have a client on a reformer. Um, so that, that's what I'm going to argue are the, the, the main things that we should focus on. And once you are very confident teaching those exercises, I think the things to focus on are the other four pillars, the queuing, programming, pre and postnatal, and injuries. Uh, so I, with the, with the, so I want to move on to each of those in turn now. So, and I'd love to know, um, if you, uh, you know, either in the live audience or if, um, you're listening to this as a podcast on your favorite podcast app or watching it on YouTube or watching the replay on a social platform, DM me or hit the comments and at me. Uh, I'd love to know, like, <laughs> is this true in your experience? Do you have a relatively short list of exercises that you basically teach to everyone and everyone gets some version of footwork or, you know, arms in straps or the roll up or teaser or whatever it might be? Um, all right, so on to queuing. Now, when I was when I was learning Pilates, I learned this, you know, queuing really, there were kind of two things that I learned because I learned in the stop Pilates system. The first one was to always cue the, the five biomechanical principles of stop Pilates, which were breathing, pelvic placement, uh, ribcage placement, scapular stability, and head and neck placement. Uh, and so in any exercise, you would always cue, you know, start by cueing the transversus abdominis and the blah, 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 and all of those principles. Uh, and then there would be, uh, you know, like the specific instructions that you give for each exercise. So we kind of learned this kind of um, generic framework of how to cue, which was the five basic principles. So you would always cue like, okay, inhale to prepare, exhale gently lift the pelvic floor, flatten the abdominals and then blah, 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 do the movement of whatever the movement is for the exercise. You know, lift your leg, curl your head forward, whatever it might be. Um, And so there were kind of specific word tracks for each exercise. So, you know, you would learn, you know, the breath pattern and all of the, you know, you basically would remember, you would memorize a spiel for each exercise. Um, Whereas I think... Uh, you know, what I've learned over the ensuing, you know, decade and a half has been is that the the job of teaching Pilates, as in to teach is to facilitate learning, to learn means 
relatively permanent changes in skill over time as a result of practice, you know, getting better at doing the thing. So to teach what we need to do are actually is actually goes beyond cueing. Cueing is one part of teaching. Um, and so I think the elephant in relation to cueing is that, you know, we need to cue the muscles every time the client uh, you know, moves because, you know, if we think about any any kind of learning situation, like think about just being in school, like in, in, in grade school, primary school, uh, you know, when you're learning, you know, to spell, um, the teacher might, you know, call out the spelling for the word, you know, the first time you learn it, here's how you spell cat, C-A-T. But if the teacher is still calling out C-A-T when you're like a senior in high school, <laughs> like there's a problem. <laughs> you should you should internalize that knowledge, you know, relatively early on. You should not require that the teacher literally spell it out for you every time you write the word. And in fact, we don't require that the teacher spell it out for us because if learning takes place, we now own that knowledge ourselves, and we don't need to be reminded of it. Maybe every now and then we make a mistake, then the teacher needs to bring that to our attention. Okay, but the teacher doesn't need to spell it out every time. Whereas in Pilates, we kind of have this, I think this mythology in a lot of uh, styles of Pilates, um, certainly I think a lot in contemporary Pilates, that, uh, which is what I was trained in originally, that, you know, teaching in quotes means telling, you know, naming the, the components of the exercise, like C-A-T, you know, breathe in to prepare, breathe out, gently contract the pelvic floor, flatten your lower abdominals, you know, Etc. 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 Right. So you know, and when I see videos sometimes online of people like you know teaching the exercise, I look at the person doing the exercise, and sometimes they're they're, they're doing it brilliantly, like they're obviously very skilled at doing Pilates, but yet the person teaching the exercise is still telling them like basically C A T. <laughs> so, dear listener, uh, you know, no knock on you if that's you, because uh, that was me for many years, uh, but I think. You know, just in terms of a common sense approach to how people learn, you know, we shouldn't be doing that beyond like, you know, the third day of somebody's <laughs> learning an exercise. So once they've got the CAT, okay, I think there are more things that we can do to facilitate learning as as a teacher rather than just somebody who is like a tape recorder that plays a recording every time somebody does you know, we want someone to do a certain movement. So I think the three things are there that are, you know, clearly come out of the literature on motor learning are building the expectation of success, giving autonomy, and using external cues that are related to the outcome of the movement. Now, I've spent a whole episode, um, probably more than one episode, talking about these things. Um, go back to my episode uh, interviewing Gabby uh, Wolf and Rebecca Luthwaite. Um, uh, I can't remember which number it is, but if you just search down, it's like fairly early in the archive uh, and we'll probably uh, link to it in the show notes. Um, so we, we talk about exactly how to do that and a lot of the research uh, around why those are the important things. So I think queuing and uh, is a pillar, but um, I would actually broaden it out and say like how to teach movement skills rather than queuing because I think queuing is like one part of how you teach movement skills effectively. The other two parts are building expectation of success and giving autonomy. Uh, the next pillar is programming. And 
I, th- I think the elephant in programming is that it's hard and time consuming. And probably I think, uh, this is one of the, the top two. This is probably the second biggest thing that I think people, you know, uh, share with me that they're struggling with. Uh, you know, so when I've, for instance, like surveyed, uh, um, my Instagram followers, um, or, you know, my email, List or current students, or whatever. These are the thing. This is the thing that people are. Your know, second biggest thing after prenatal, <laughs> which people stress about, uh, and what stresses people about programming, I think mostly is how long it takes to do it. Uh, you know, I have people saying they spend hours every week, you know, programming their sessions, uh, and. Um, that it's very, very time consuming and hard work. And so I think that the actual, uh, the good news is it can be really, really simple. And you can, in fact, program a session in under 60 seconds. Like you can program a, a great, you know, 60 minute long Pilates session on one or many apparatus that works the whole body through all ranges of motion in all directions uh, at an appropriate level for whatever the level of client, the fitness the client or clients in the class have. Um, and you can do that in under 60 seconds. Uh, and it's very, very simple. Now, I don't have you know time right now to go into how to do that, but I think uh, there are, you know, we've developed at Breathe a, a very simple framework, um, which Heath and I uh, have talked about a couple of times, and there's an episode, uh, again, I can't remember which number it is, but it's the title is, there are only three exercises in the world and cat stretch is two of them, something like that. And we'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, and that talks about our approach to programming and how to do it very, very simply. Uh, so really, essentially, like the basic gist is, uh, you know, we think in terms of body positions rather than uh, you know, individual exercises. So rather than thinking, I'm going to start with the ex- this exercise, then move on to this exercise, we just think like, okay, we're going to start in supine, or we're going to start in standing, or we're going to start in prone, or we're start- going to start in four-point kneeling. And then we just think like, okay, what are a series of movements we can do in that position? position, starting from very easy to, and progressing gradually to very hard. So we start with, say, four-point kneeling. We might start with like cat stretch, which is a super, you know, basic exercise that pretty much anybody, you know, um, with, you know, relatively normal health can do. Uh, And then we'd progress it from cat stretch to a slightly harder version, maybe lifting one leg or maybe, you know, hovering the knees, you know, how would we make that slightly harder? Um, And so we just, you know, gradually make it harder, make it harder, make it harder, and then after you've done like five to seven, you know, versions, you move on to a different body position. Maybe go from four-point kneeling to prone, okay? And then we go, okay, what's a really easy prone exercise? What's a slightly harder prone exercise? Slightly harder, slightly harder, slightly harder, slightly harder. Okay, now we roll over to supine. Bam, rinse and repeat. So we think in terms of like a series of layers or progressively harder exercises in a body position. So rather than thinking about individual exercises, we think, in a, any given session, you're doing a 60-minute session, you might do like three or four or so, you know, body positions. And so all you're thinking is like, oh, I'm going to do quadruped, supine, prone, sideline. Bam, there's my four positions, okay? And when you do front, back, and sides, you've done all of the muscles, right? Prone, you work your back muscles. Supine, you work your front muscles. <laughs> sideline, you work your side muscles. So we've worked all the muscles if we've done all of those positions. So it's really, really, really 
simple. Uh, now, it's not really simple necessarily the very first time you try to do it. Like anything, you know, riding a bike. First time you do it, not very simple. But when you've done it a fair few times, it becomes really, really simple. And this is the same with programming using uh, layers and clusters like body positions, like I just talked you through, uh, is it becomes so easy and so simple. You can literally program a 60-minute class in under one minute. Okay. Uh, programming. Um, I think, sorry, there, there, there are a couple of, sort of other sort of slight sub points that I'd like to make on programming. Uh, the two things are, one is uh, I think we almost universally underload people in Pilates. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, in order to stimulate a strengthening effect, uh, an adaptation in the body, we need to, the primary uh, stimulus is High level, a high level of mechanical tension on individual muscle fibers. And we only experience that in the final like half dozen or so reps before failure. And failure is where you literally cannot continue. So if you're doing push-ups, you know, and you get to a point where you're like, oh, I can't do another one, that is failure. So like the last five or six or so reps before that is where you're actually getting a strengthening stimulus, right? So if you can do like 30 reps of an exercise, like say footwork, for example, and you only do like 20 reps and then stop, you're probably getting almost zero strengthening stimulus. Probably pretty close to zero. Because the strengthening stimulus happens in the final half a dozen reps before you hit failure, right? So that's the reps where you really start to slow down. Or if you're in a plank, it's where you start to really shake and you start to sag a little bit in the middle. <laughs> so if you're not getting your clients to that point at least once in the class per movement, you know, front, back, sides, okay? Um, if you're not getting their front muscles to that point, at least once, their back muscles at that point at least once, their side muscles at that point at least once, and their leg muscles to that point at least once, you're not providing a strengthening stimulus. So we need to uh, either do enough reps that the client gets to that point where they just start to slow down and it's really hard to proceed, or we need to increase the load, right? Add more springs or take off more springs as the case may be, or just add more lever, you know, lift the knees off the ground or whatever it might be on the mat so that we get to that point where it's the client, it's the last few reps before failure. And you don't have to go all the way to failure, but if you stop like two or three reps before failure, you will get a strengthening stimulus. Mostly in Pilates, uh, that doesn't happen. Uh, and the final thing is the principle of specificity. So exactly what you train is exactly what you get good at. If you want to get good at doing a split, practice a split. If you want to get good at doing push-ups, practice push-ups. All right. Programming. The next thing I want to talk about is prenatal, and uh, I find you know this is you know by a mile the number one uh, topic that Pilates instructors seem to feel uh, inadequately prepared for, or you know have a lot of curiosity uh, and anxiety about. And I think the, you know, we've devoted several episodes of this podcast to prenatal, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on this here, but I think the elephant is that that it needs to be scary or complicated or that there are special, you know, lots of special rules for pregnant women. Um, and uh, my 
30 second summary of how to teach pre and postnatal Pilates. Although, you know, go and listen to the three or four episodes, just, you know, search our history for the word prenatal um, or pregnancy or diastasis. We've got a bunch of episodes and all of that. Um, this, the three simple rules for, you know, pregnancy friendly Pilates sessions are no prolonged supine work after 20 weeks. Okay. Avoid overheating and stay hydrated and avoid falls risk, right? Now, there's a fourth one, which is not actually a rule, but it's just kind of like a common sense thing, which is maintain comfort, right? Which doesn't mean like you have to prop everyone with a bazillion bolsters and cushions and blankets. It just means like if they don't enjoy doing the half rollback when they're 30 weeks pregnant, just like don't have them do that. <laughs> have them do something they enjoy more. And that's going to be individual and each each woman's going to have things, you know, that, are, that she does or doesn't like that are, you know, somewhat unique to her so you just have to ask hey how do you feel about doing the half rollback today and she'll go yeah that's fine and she might go yeah i don't want to do that can we do something else um so yeah no prolonged supine after 20 weeks avoid overheating and stay hydrated which is like this isn't like avoid ever raising your body temperature this is like avoid you know uh you know significant increase in body temperature beyond what you would get with normal exercise so as long as you're exercising in a thermoneutral environment like a air-conditioned Pilates studio, right? you're, you're perfectly, perfectly safe and avoid falls risk. So don't do splits on a low spring, don't stand on BOSUs, et cetera, unless you have um, something to hold on to. And even then it's like, why take why take the risk? Um, do splits with one foot on the floor, you know, and you don't need to stand on a BOSU. Uh, so that's prenatal and really, it really is that simple. Uh, dear listener, um, please, if you're unconvinced of that, go back and listen to you know one or all of those uh, previous episodes on prenatal. Um, and the final uh, L, the final pillar, sorry, I want to talk about of the you know the five key skills of Pilates instructor is working with clients who are injured or who have pain. Um, so uh, now the elephant, I think in relation to this is that pain and injury are the same thing. I think um, most people uh, assume that or are taught that. It turns out that it is not the case. Uh, And that what you see on scans, things like disc bulges, disc degeneration, meniscal tears, uh, you know, rotator cuff tears, uh, you know, labral tears, um, et cetera. Um, What you see on scans are not necessarily injuries and there's they're not even necessarily that related to pain very much or at all. Um, and the final elephant there is that there are special exercises for each of those things. You know, which exercises for labral tear, which exercises for disc bulge, which exercises for a, you know, disc degeneration or stenosis or, or whatever it might be. Um, now, there are, there are, it is the case that th- for a very small number of conditions, there are specific movements which might be more helpful than other specific movements. But those are absolutely the edge cases. And for the vast majority of conditions, from the extremely mild to extremely serious, there are no special movements that are good or bad, just like the same movements that are that are beneficial for everyone are beneficial for people with the condition, whether the condition is disc bulge or cancer 
or you know diabetes or you know whatever it might be the exercises that are going to benefit that person are basically the same movements um, i'll give you a couple of of examples um, so for let's think about disc bulge someone with a disc bulge uh, who has back pain um, there is no um, there is no specific exercise which is going to be of more or less benefit on average for people with disc bulge than any other exercise. We've looked at exercises from really every corner of, of the available literature from heavy deadlifting to uh, unloaded multifidus activation to spinal stabilization to walking to yoga to mindfulness to breath work to general fitness programming in a gym to like core strengthening and hip mobilization like we've looked at all of these things and what we found is again and again and again and again everything works just as well as everything else there is no one best or worst exercise for somebody with a disc bulge who has back pain um and so uh, you know, this that's very, very, very clear in, in the literature from ha- literally hundreds of studies. Uh, and so, which is great because it means that like just getting moving has a lot of benefit for people, but, and it doesn't really matter what particular movement they do. So you might as well just give them a general workout, like we talked about in the programming section, where you're doing the front, the back and the sides. Okay, and bringing all of their muscles to a point relatively near to failure, like within five or six reps of failure, okay, uh, they're going to get the full benefit, right? There is no special exercise. If we think about things, something like a rotator cuff tear in the shoulder, uh, any loaded arm movement is going to load the rotator cuff. And in fact, the more load in the arm movement, you know, the more load you're working against with a big arm movement, the more load will be on the rotator cuff. Rotator cuff. So you don't need to do special exercises to isolate your rotator cuff. You can target the rotator cuff just fine by doing a push-up or a plank or a rowing movement or any other loaded arm movement. So you don't need a special exercise. And in fact, none of those special exercises have shown been shown to be any more effective at rehabilitation of people with shoulder pain, whether it's rotator cuff related shoulder pain or you know um, painful arc, what we used to call you know shoulder impingement. Um, you know, none of the no, there's no exercise has been shown to be more or less beneficial for people with these conditions. So really, literally, any loaded arm movement is going to be of benefit. Same as with, with disc bulge. And we see this again and again and again uh, in the literature um, for you know multiple different conditions um, that you don't need to do special exercises for each condition. Just you know, be sensible, avoid uh, excessively aggravating symptoms. Um, and that's where I kind of just want to uh, spend the last minute before we finish up here is on injuries that uh, you know, for you know the the skills that we actually need, I think, in relation to injuries are three. We need three basic skills. The first skill is the ability to screen for red flags and acute injury. Right. So there are you know if somebody like has a broken arm or you know 
a disc bulge that they, you know, a traumatic injury, you know, to their back that is like 48 hours old, okay, or some other like acute injury, okay, well, yes, they, they sh- there are movements they should avoid in that situation, okay, and they probably should avoid all movement <laughs> in that in that situation. So we do need to be able to identify people who have an acute injury, you know, the tissue is still healing, uh, and, you know, uh, either refer or, you know, modify for those people appropriately. And modifying is very simple. You're just like, okay, don't do anything that hurts. <laughs> um, so if you think about the person who sprained their ankle yesterday, it's like, do you have to send them to the emergency room? No. I mean, unless it's very, very, very severe, but it's like, can they still do class? Yes. But they probably like don't weight bear on that ankle, right? So just do single leg footwork. <laughs> yeah, everything else is going to be fine, right? You can use your arms, you can use your abs, you can use your back, all those things, just as long as you avoid aggravating that injured, you know, body part. So just common sense, you know, model there. So, but we need to able be able to identify people with acute injuries versus those with persistent or chronic pain, right? So that's a rule. Uh, that's a skill we need is to screen and identify those people with acute injuries and red flags. Second thing we need to understand is uh, pain management, or in other words, what we, what I would call the 24-hour rule. And the 24-hour rule says that uh, for people with chronic um, pain, okay, so we've ruled out the people with acute injuries, they're not in the room anymore, um, or they're you know, avoiding uh, you know, loading their injured part. So for everybody else, the 24-hour rule says that Pain with exercise is perfectly safe, okay, because pain and injury are not the same thing, and when you have pain, it doesn't mean you're causing damage. Pain with exercise is perfectly safe. However, if symptoms stay elevated for more than 24 hours after a session, do less at the next session, right? So if if if, if it's more painful during, that's okay, as long as it's tolerable, but if it doesn't settle within 24 hours after the session, back to pre-session levels of symptom, that just means you pushed a bit too hard, right? So back it off at the next session and proceed a bit more gently. So that's the 24-hour rule, right? Pain during a session is fine as long as it's tolerable. This is for people once we've ruled out acute injury, okay? Pain during a session, tolerable pain during a session is fine as long as it settles within 24 hours. If it doesn't, back it off next time. And the third thing uh, that I think is important for us to understand in relation to injuries is that rehab is very, very simple. It's just graded exercise to restore strength, range of motion, and control. And I, th- I think actually the uh, the last couple of weeks I did an episode on that. So there is an episode called <laughs> Rehab is Just Graded Exercise uh, a couple of episodes back if you want to hear my thoughts on that. So, dear listener, I think, uh, you know, in summary, um I think there are five key skills of a Pilates instructor to be able to confidently teach Pilates to anyone who walks through your door or into your Zoom room. Uh, I think those pillars are the exercises, cueing, programming, pre and postnatal, and injuries. And I think that, you know, when by and large, we spend, you know, a disproportionate amount of time on queuing, oh, sorry, on exercises in the Pilates world. And we probably, for most of us, if we actually, if you're feeling underconfident in, you know, working with any particular clients or, you know, in some aspect of your teaching, rather than learning more exercises, like if you already know 20 or 30 exercises that you can 
string together into a class that will work the front, the back, and the sides of, of the client, you know enough exercises. And I think your time will be better off analyzing those four remaining skills, queuing, programming, prenatal, and injuries, and thinking, okay, where are my, you know, where are my gaps in those four key pillars? And go and seek out specialist, you know, learning in those key pillars. And and for the love of God, dear listener, don't go and learn repertoire (laughs) for those things. Don't learn like the repertoire for prenatal or the repertoire for injuries, um, because then it's just like the same thing, (laughs) the problem repeating. So learn the principles, learn the principles, learn the frameworks of how to work with prenatal clients, how to work with injured clients, how to program. So don't learn, you don't, if if you already know 20 or 30 exercises and that that will, you know, work all the major muscles of the body through full range of motion, forwards, backwards, and sideways, um, you know enough exercises what you need to know are principles in relation to queuing, programming, prenatal, and injury. So I would say, have a sit down, you know, do some reflection, grab a cup of coffee, think about where are the gaps for you in those four areas, and go and seek out some uh, expert instruction. Um, you know, read a book, watch a video, do a course, um, go and get a mentor to help you with that specific thing, but not the repertoire. <laughs> of that specific thing. Um, And dear listener, if you know somebody or if you are somebody who's interested in learning all of those skills to a high level, uh, you will find all of that in our certification in Pilates. We teach that program 100% online. You can do it from anywhere in the world. And it is in five modules. And guess what we cover in the five modules? The five core skills of a Pilates instructor. So it's 20 weeks, four weeks per module. And uh, I will uh, put in the show notes, there's a link to a video explaining the whole program to you and how it works and how we help you learn all of those skills. So if if that's of interest to you or if it's of interest to somebody you know, uh, I'll be very grateful if you would share that with them. So thanks so much uh, for participating, those of you live. Thanks uh, to you in the Pilates stratosphere for listening. Hope you find this helpful. I'd love to have your feedback and your comments, your thoughts. Um, on the mark, off the mark, does this ring true in your experience? Where do you feel the gaps are for you? You can DM me on social media uh, or just uh, hit a comment to wherever you are watching or listening to this. All right. Much love and I will see you in the next one. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means 
You keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.